All right, welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we are going to talk to Chris Pia from Lunge and Lures. Chris is hanging out in Colorado these days, and he's anxious to talk about musky fishing. I think the last time we would have had him on would have probably been he was still probably still living in Hawaii then. Uh, we're gonna talk. We're gonna take a little break from fall fishing. We're gonna talk a little bit about breaking down water and you know kind of his adventures over there in Colorado. We're gonna get a little bit update on Lunge and Lures. So that's kind of what's on tap for this episode. Hopefully um, everybody listening can take a little bit of something out of it. I would imagine, you know, seeing as though we're early part of October, we're probably going to have to talk about turnover and fall fishing and suckers and trolling and all that coming up. So kind of giving you a break from that, seeing as though we we're kind of hitting, um, you know, September fishing, we hit that pretty hard. And so we're going to jump to a little bit of a different topic. Wouldn't you say, Brad, that's kind of what we're going to do this week? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, I, how many times can you uh, just keep pounding away on the certain topic? And I mean, that's been kind of the deal. You know, I, one of the things that I, I should highlight, though, is I'm going to say in the next 10 days, a lot of bodies of water are going to go through uh, turnover. It's going to be interesting here. I don't know if you've looked at the 10 day at all, Jeff, but we got some cold weather coming upon us. But in the meantime, let's discuss... Uh, hitting new bodies of water and some uh, Colorado tigers. Yeah, I would I would agree with you, Brad. I mean, from here, I think, you know, today is Monday, so this episode will come out in two days. And from what I could tell, it looked like the temperature for us was like 47 degrees for a high on Friday. The water temperatures over the weekend were just about 60 where I was fishing. So I'm assuming that's going to push things into turnover really pretty quickly. I mean, quite possibly as early on some of those bodies of water as early as this coming weekend, I would think. I think I looked further out, Brad, though. It looks like we're going to deal with another cold stretch, and then it's going to kind of pop back up to what I would consider to be a normal range. So it's not like we're worried about going into some odd, weird, deep freeze here pretty quick. I mean, I, I think as far as falls go, I would like to think that this is maybe somewhat kind of more normal, potentially. Yeah, I mean, what's normal anymore? But I, I will say, you know, the last two seasons, if you remember, two years ago, we were dealing with a bunch of snow on the ground mid-October. We then all of a sudden warmed up and we had a beautiful November. Last year was a beautiful November as well. And we had some cold stretches in October. So maybe that's the new trend. I don't know. But unlike, uh, I should say not unlike most years, we basically have had some cold Octobers, which I'm okay with in one sense, Jeff, just in the fact that turnover comes and it's done, right? I hate those years where the, the lake flops and then it warms up and then it flops again and then it gets cold and then it flops again. I'd rather have that boom, be done with turnover, clear up and let's have some good fishing. And then it can warm up slowly throughout the rest of the season. Yeah. And I think that based on what I can tell we're going to probably maybe get something more normal, more, you know, more similar along that, that path that you described. Obviously mother nature can, can change and, and make a big U-turn, U-turn very quickly, but We'll worry about that as we get to it. So I wanted to, um, you know, a couple of weeks back, Brad, we mentioned that we were had, we had a duplicate website out there. I wanted to let everybody know that thanks to, um, you know, many people's help, we now have that website taken down. During the course of all of that, I actually found out that we weren't the only ones that had that problem. And those have, you know, we actually helped subsequently get some of those taken down too. I had a, le- a listener reach out to me also, you know who you are. And I want to thank you publicly for your help also. So um, glad to mention that that's all taken care of. Now the only website that you can search out there is www.teamrhinooutdoors.com. So if you're looking for gear this fall, check that out. I know we've uh, we've, we've placed a bunch of orders yet and we're still getting you know more stuff in there because you know, anglers are still out there chasing muskies. As we mentioned earlier, this is a prime time for muskies. So if you're looking for gear, make sure you check out our website teamrhinooutdoors.com that'd be www.teamrhinooutdoors.com and you know brad some people in the south even some people in the north they're still chasing down uh, that bucktail bite so if they want that last minute bucktail they want to build something custom on your website how can they go about doing that yeah absolutely i mean i'm still using the bucktails right now like i said the turnover might be coming but uh ultimately they're going to work right through that whole time frame it's real easy. It's muskymayhemtackle.com, and you can order direct from us or any fine retailer such as Team Rhino Outdoors. Excellent. 
you know, Brad, we we talked previously about how difficult the season was, and you know, for the most part, I wouldn't say that I would have known anything about how difficult it was other than hearing about it from people. But you know, in the last month, I've actually gotten uh, a handful of days on the water, and to tell you the truth, I'm probably sitting at one of my best, you know, catch catch rates per hour for muskies, and I in a long, long time. I've actually been, uh, you know, blind squirrel is definitely finding a few nuts so far this month. So it's not all bad over here for for me. I've actually put some fish in the net, and I, I know they're even bigger now thanks thanks to your uh, amazing Photoshop abilities. <laughs> well, I'm glad to help, Jeff. You know, I I wish I could say the same about my fishing. Um, I've had some struggles, but we've definitely put some fish in the boat as well. I. Uh, it, <laughs> As you know, and everybody else out there listening, musky fishing isn't always easy, and I think that's why we still do it. You know, I mean, that that's half of it, right? Just struggling and trying to figure things out, and that's why I love it. So, it's all good. Yep. I even managed this past weekend, Brad, I managed to catch a muskie that I had no intention of catching. I think I've told you this story, but I'll quick tell it. And, you know, maybe if I ever edit some video, I might actually have it, because I have a bunch of video shot of, of the stuff I've done recently. But anyways, so I had this, I, I got, I went to the bait store, I got two suckers and, uh, you know, typically I'm not very cheap, but I also once I, if I, since I don't fish that often, if I buy five suckers and I got three of them left over or whatever, I don't, I don't want to try to keep three suckers alive till who knows when the next time I'm going to fish is. So I tried to keep it on a reasonable level, especially at $12 a crack. And so I only bought two suckers early part of my day. I have a muskie come up and I was fishing shallower water. So this, the sucker literally was up on the surface. I saw the muskie basically come up to the surface, chase the sucker down and grab the sucker. I could see the muskie was skinny as heck and probably, I don't know, between 32 and 35 inches long. Not, not a giant, but definitely not necessarily what I wanted to set the hook on us, you know, on the sucker. And so I, I try to get, you know, I just put some pressure on him, pulled him towards the boat. He lets go of it, let it go. I'm like, all right, hopefully I'm done with him. Put my sucker back out. No sooner than I get the sucker back out, he hits it again. And I did the same thing, brought him towards the boat, gets close to the boat. He lets go of it again. So I figured, (laughs) all right, third time's a charm. This fish has to now be, you know, boat shy or whatever. So I put this sucker back out. And again, the exact same thing comes up. This time he T-bones it, you know, really solid. I don't think he got a single hook in him, but well, actually I think maybe he did just towards the very end. But again, I didn't set the hook on him. I actually got this, this uh, muskie in the net on the sucker after me trying to give him two free passes, finally wanted his picture taken, I guess. So that was a first for me. I've never seen that happen before. I think you just wanted to be famous, Jeff. Yeah, that's what it is. Famous. Well, then he should have been. He should end up in your boat. At least you know somebody's going to see him on on video. There's no, there's no guarantees this is going to make it anywhere. That's funny. Well, what you should do is you should post the original picture and then the the picture I edited for you. <laughs> I, I should both bo- post both original pictures and both edits that you did. <laughs> right. You're only talking about the small fish that you caught. You caught a good one too. I did. I did catch a good one. I caught a good one on the bulldog. That was exciting. And then, uh, you know, a typical musky fishing fashion. I text my wife. I think it was like, I don't know, like 11 o'clock. And I'm like, well, I already got two muskies for the day. I should probably just call her a day. And she's like, no way. You got plenty of time. You can't leave now. You just got two of them. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why I should leave right now. I just got two of them. (laughs) (laughs) It should cut my losses. Of course, I fished for another five hours with nothing to show for it. So, uh, although it was a beautiful day, I mean, I can't argue with that a beautiful day on the fall, on the water in the fall. I, you, you can't ask for a whole lot more than that. And then I got the two muskies to boot. So that was good. But man, I just, I, I was so hopeful I could search it out, but you know, it, it was all off peak, no moon windows involved in that. I fished through the minor yesterday. And then, um, I think a lot of it was, was weather related, meaning like the morning it was overcast, it wasn't raining or drizzly or anything like that. It, it was still pretty, it was pretty calm yet. And then in the afternoon, uh, you know, the cloud, the cloud cover went away. It became brighter and sunnier. And I, I just never really, I'm not in love with that for musky fishing. Yeah, I hear you, Jeff. And I, I would say that this year, and I know that we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks, but weather has been trumping all. And I think as musky fishermen, we all know that weather does trump everything, right? It's going to trump the uh, the moon phases and so on and so forth. But 
weather has been just such a huge key, whether it be a wind change, it might be sun, it might be clouds, but you definitely want to stick it out. And when you see some of those changes happening, make sure you get to your best spots. Definitely. Well, Brad, unless you have anything to add to this episode, I think we should just uh, go dial up our conversation with Chris and get on with this episode. Let's do it. All right. Our guest this week is Chris Pia, Lungeon Lures. As you know, per usual, I'm not very prepared. I know we've had Chris on a couple times. I'm guessing uh, typically we save like that Veterans Day episode right there for Chris, but I know for sure we didn't do Veterans Day of 2021. So it'd probably be, I'm guessing, 2020. So it's been almost two years since we probably had you on the podcast, Chris. What do you think? Is that right? That sounds about right. Well, I mean, it's it's glad, it's good to have you back. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Lungeon Lures. Let's give you a little update on that, what's going on there. It's been, like I said, a while. And then the purpose of this episode is basically to get away from us talking about fall fishing and turnover and all that stuff. We'll have all of October to do that. And today, we're going to talk about new waters because, Chris, you travel around, you know, with your um, position there. With the government, you travel around a lot and you change a lot. Your last trip, you didn't get to do any muskie chasing, and now you get to get back at chasing muskies. So we're going to kind of pick your brain a little bit and talk about some uh, tiger muskies that you've been catching out there in Colorado. And, you know, maybe just give some people some advice on, you know, how to track down new water or how to break down new water or get started on new water, however you want to word that. But that's kind of the, uh, that's kind of the game plan for tonight. Sounds good. All right, so Chris, we talk, you know, I, I talked about Lungeon Lures a little bit. Let's talk about that. It's been a couple of years since you guys have had, you know, since we've had you on. So, and I know, I, I mean, I'm hoping maybe you'll talk about it a little bit. I got this package in the mail today, and it was labeled, uh, you know, highly classified information from Lungeon Lures. So I'm <laughs> thinking, you know, there's a potential that you're going to maybe see some something new from Lungeon Lures coming down the road here in I mean, I would say it's a little bit outside your ballpark, right? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, anyone that's fished with Matt and I or has got a chance to talk to us knows that when we go fishing, it's it's about fishing. Like, do we use our products? Yeah, sometimes. But it's a tool for, you know, application. Unfortunately, like, if you look at some of the products we, don't, we have, we don't have the whole gamut covered. So... Matt and I are constantly talking about, you know, what are we going to do there? And, and how do we find something that fits kind of our needs uh, as, we, as we're reaching into our, our tackle box and, and grabbing other companies' lures, you know? Not that I have any problem throwing it, and actually a lot of other companies' products uh, that I have a lot of confidence in. It's just like we, we saw an area that Matt and I both really like to fish, and we're like, hey, let's run with it and see what happens, so... We've been playing around with this thing for, oh, about a year now. And it, it finally kind of came to fruition where, you know, we've got some, some decent prototypes that, that we really like. And so we're just sending, a, you know, we sent a couple to you and a couple of our, our close pro staff and said to give us some feedback. So I, I think we've got a, a pretty good proof of concept with what we're coming out with. And I think everyone will be excited once they actually see it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like I said, it's definitely outside of the norm for what you guys have done in the past, and um, I'm anxious to run it and, uh, you know, see see what it can do. I know that uh, I don't get the most time on the water. I've certainly been lacking this season, but us talking about with Brad, I mean, it hasn't really been a terrible season for me, all things considered. I mean, I've been able to put fish in the net at a, I would say, not a terrible clip. I mean, I haven't had to work super hard for them, but I also haven't had a lot of time on the water. So I guess, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. So I'm hoping to get lucky with this bait yet this fall. Cause it, it still is. I mean, this bait here will definitely be something that anglers would employ during the fall time. Yes, I agree. Like I said, it's a little bit outside of our manufacturing, you know, background. However, dot comma, it is very much in our fishing repertoire. If that makes sense. Like Matt and I fish these types of products regularly. I have a lot of confidence in them in the spring and fall. So we shall see. And in the summer months, too. just depends on what's going on with the weather and, and, and whatnot. So it'll just be another tool for the toolbox, right? Absolutely. So other than this, you know, well, top secret, you know, bait that you got coming out here. I don't know what else to call it. It's definitely a bait and it's definitely top secret. 
um, you know, why don't you talk about what's been going on with Lungeon for the past couple of years? Because this isn't the first, you know, new thing that you guys have done in the last couple of years. No, I mean, Matt and I have kind of hunkered down. You know, obviously we've got our, our bucktails and our spinnerbaits, you know, that we started out with. And then we branched off into, you know, the crankbait market. And we really wanted to, like, round out our crankbait lineup. So, you know, from big to small, um, different speeds, different sizes, different actions, Matt and I have like really kind of focused in on, you know, making sure that there's a, a bunch of different options, whether it be casting or trolling with our cranks. And so like one of the kind of the last things that we took a look at uh, was, was alley cat lures. And so, you know, we had had a lot of talks with Cliff beforehand. He'd always set up shop across from us at the Ohio Musty Show. And we, you know, we built a good relationship and he kind of mentioned that he was thinking about getting out of it. And I love his products. They, they fish good and they're, they're kind of different than what we already kind of had to offer. And so that was kind of our, our, our last hurdle kind of on like the crankbait market was like the, the 22 short is one of the, one of the few smaller baits out there. And so we thought the LP would complement that. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't act the same way that the, the 22 shorts do. And, and a lot of people had had success like in the spring and summer trolling them. So we thought that'd be a, a, a great addition to the line. And the, the stray cat, like having a really good flat sided trolling crankbait that, that makes a, a, a lot of noise and, and, and puts out a lot of uh, vibration in the water. You know, if you look at some of the other baits that are on the market, I mean, Paul, you know, from Boschette has a, a really good flat-sided crankbait that we've fished. I mean, like I said, I don't just fish lunch and stuff. So that that one kind of filled, you know, a, a variety of different, you know, things for us, you know. So it was just like, hey, you know, we brought on the alley cat. Uh, we're in the process of actually getting it molded right now. It's taken a little bit longer with all the kind of whiplash still of COVID. Uh, there's, there's still a lot of things kind of going on behind the scenes that I know a lot of the anglers maybe maybe experience in other market areas, but there's still some kind of residual stuff left in our industry that I'm, I'm dealing with. And I don't know if Brad can say the same, but whether it be supplies or, you know, increased costs of doing business in certain certain spaces, but manufacturing has kind of been one of those areas with, when it comes specifically to tooling that has been kind of tough for us. So we're pretty close with the LP. We've, we've got it all cut and everything. We're just in the process of, of actually making some prototypes right now to test to make sure that we nail down the action of it. Because I mean, that's one thing that Matt and I have kind of always tried to do is like, you know, when we take a product from whether it be balsa, mahogany, cherry, and in some cases, you know, what Chad's base, they're PVC and then getting the same action on a plastic. It, it's, it's a process, but the thing is Cliff is going to stay engaged. You know, one of the things that, that we always ask of, of folks when we're, we're doing types of these deals is, you know, are you in it for the long haul? And at the end of the day, he's got the, the final call when it comes to the product. So if, when we send him the, the final, you know, the final ABS version, the plastic version, you know, he's the one that's going to put his, his stamp of approval on it because that's what matters to us that we match the original action. So we just want to round out that crankbait line, you know, to really offer our clients, uh, that you know the, the widest variety of, of different tools when it comes to crankbaits so that's why we kind of hunkered down into alley cat we've got a few other things up our sleeve i know you mentioned the the, the, the top secret thing but we're we're doing some other prototyping too so I, we feel like we're starting to, to branch off into some other market areas and kind of really look at a, a wider uh, spectrum of goods that we could offer to the to the musk community when it comes to spending time on the water and fishing Sure. Definitely. I mean, if you're looking to, you know, if you, if you have a need for crankbaits, definitely check out Lungeon Lures. I mean, now you guys have it covered from small to big and, you know, wide bodied and flat sided and, you know, that chubby is a, a fatter bait. And, you know, I mean, you guys have everything pretty much covered there on the crankbait side of things. So definitely, uh, you know, people shouldn't be a stranger to Lungeon Lures and you now the alley cat side of stuff if you're looking for crankbaits and, you know, I'm sure Chris, you guys probably have a great selection of stuff on your own website, but we also have it on our website. And if I was a good website owner, I would have the LPs up there already, but instead I, um, I have them all laid out where I take my pictures. So I haven't taken pictures of them yet. So hopefully one of these days I'll get those up there too. You'd think I would have been, you know, on that seeing as though people were buying more baits a month ago than they are today, but, uh, real life gets in the way and, 
we'll get them up to date here pretty soon. So it's all good, Jeff. I think you're going to beat me to the punch because I don't even have ours up yet. (laughs) (laughs) I just ran a second batch. We ran a small batch for the shows and they sold out. I don't even think we brought any to like the last show because they got picked over. And so I I know there's the demand is out there. There were some questions on on pricing. Um, The ones that we have now I'll I'll put out there are wood. There are mahogany bait. And so we didn't want to give up on quality, right? That was the one thing that we kind of talked with Cliff and he was kind of struggling a little bit with some of his wood. And so long story short, we went the mahogany route to make sure that when we put it in customer's hands, like they were getting a quality product. As anyone knows, the price of lumber and, you know, has increased dramatically over the last 24 months. So, you know, they're, they're a little bit more pricey, but I just want to assure the listeners out there that we're in the process of, of getting them molded. And then, you know, the, the price will come down a little bit once, once we have the plastic version. So if, if folks can't wait, they can buy the mahogany ones, or if they're more comfortable waiting, you know, you can imagine probably five, six, seven dollars cheaper once we get them in plastic. So I know a lot of folks that, that got them this spring have caught fish and they're already beating us up pretty good for <laughs> asking us when, when we're going to have more. And then the, the same thing with the stray cats. I know that the few folks that got their hands on them absolutely wrecked fish. I don't know if you saw any of our social media posts out West, a lot of the, uh, I'll say some of the, the, you know, the folks out in Utah got their hands on them and they absolutely put the smack down. I think my buddy who's out here, I think he stuck something like 40 fish in a week or something silly like that. And I want to say like, I don't know, maybe, more than half of more over 40. It was ridiculous. And then there's, there's some other folks we work with that they got their hands on them and, and have caught some fish. Hopefully you'll see that on TV to share. Sure. Definitely. All right. So Chris, let's switch gears. We've talked a little bit about lunge and lures, kind of gave you an update on that. A lot of stuff going on as you know, you got much like a lot of people in the industry, you guys are always moving and shaking and you guys are trying to keep things fresh and new and, you know, always coming up with new baits and new paint jobs and things like that. So definitely check out, you know, lunge and lures, but let's talk about fishing. Let's first off, let's let, why don't you talk a little bit about what you got going on out there in Colorado, and then we'll kind of talk about how you got started out there. Okay. So there are a stock tiger muskies in Colorado and it's a little bit different vibe out here. It's not like the Midwest where there's a good volume of folks or demand for musky fishing, you know, CPW primarily stocks them as like a fish management tool, uh, primarily in lakes that have overgrown or outsized sucker populations. So they purchase all the, the tigers from Nebraska and then they stock them in lakes where they're trying to kind of get the suckers back in check. Most of the waters out here, you know, the, the big dollars in Colorado is trout fishing, you know, so that that's the primary focus of the DNR out here. And then that's where they spend their big bucks. I think they've thrown tigers in a few lakes, just kind of, like I said, keep those suckers in check and kind of keep the habitat kind of where it needs to be. But the ones that do have fish in them are, are doing really well. The, the fisheries are, are well-rounded. It's funny. It's like, I always I try to tell people like, you know, when you introduce an apex predator into a system like this, that, a lot of people will complain like, oh, they ate all my trout or, oh, they ate all the panfish. Well, yes, they do eat trout and panfish, but the ones that typically survive grow to be much bigger on scale. So some of the lakes that have these, you know, tigers in them are, are kicking out some of the biggest trout. The one of the lakes that fish has got smallmouth in them and there, there's five, six, seven pound smallmouth in there. So competition always isn't a bad thing. It just depends on kind of how you look at things. All right, Chris. Well, you, you kind of got a little background on it. Why don't you talk a little bit about your experience out there fishing? Sure. So when I, you know, before I moved out here, obviously I spent a ton of time on the internet, probably more time than I care to admit to my wife, researching kind of where they stocked, uh, you know, tigers, what lakes were, you know, kicking them out. And so, and looking at stocking reports too, to kind of figure out where I should kind of start. And so there was a few lakes that I kind of honed in on and I just spent the majority of my time at a couple of lakes, to be honest with you. There's probably three primary lakes that I fish out here. And that said, when it comes to like moving around a lot, as you mentioned, like, you know, being in the Air Force, I, I move every three to four years. I have to like start fresh every single time. And 
yeah, it can be frustrating at times, but it's humbling and it, it just, it gives you an opportunity to kind of try new things or apply old techniques, tactics and procedures to new bodies of water. So the first year I came out here, it, it was tougher, but I was able to kind of like, just kind of like let the fish kind of tell me kind of like what they wanted. These tigers, they like smaller baits. Uh, so, you know, of course you just got to spend time out there throwing, you know, bigger baits or doing things that maybe you used in other body of waters and just kind of like look for cues and, and, in ways that the fish are reacting or, or kind of let them tell you like what they're looking for. So I showed up out here with, you know, 20 Plano boxes of lures. And now I've kind of got that narrowed down to like three or four. And it just takes time to kind of go through the repertoire and kind of figure out, you know, what are things that they're going to respond to during different, you know, different seasons, different weather patterns, you know, different water temperatures, et cetera. I will say that the the window out here is is much shorter for fishing than I anticipated. These tigers, they're different than any other tiger fishery that I've kind of, you know, that I know of. And I've talked to the folks in Utah, folks talked to folks in Washington. Obviously, there's a a lot of tigers that are in the Midwest as well. And for some reason, these specific tigers don't really like cold water. The summer months seem to be the best for us. So once the water temperatures are getting like the mid fifties. In the spring, it starts to turn on. And then as soon as that water temperature gets below about 60 in the fall, they're done. Um, and I've put in time out there, almost too much time, trying to figure out what will get them to go in colder water. But they just don't seem to give two hoots about what we're doing in the cold water. So, you know, pretty much June, June July, August, September is pretty much the month that it's it's a full court press on the musky fishing and then and it's uh, off to other hobbies for me. So it's just, it's kind of a tighter window for me to kind of get after it, but you know, they're, they're pretty cool. I, I've done really well on, on smaller, smaller blades, whether it be our, our Nutbuster junior, our, our little deuces have done really, really well out here. Our bottle rockets seem to fish well, you know, small rubber has its time and place. And then topwater seems to work really well. I've caught a few fish trolling here or there. I, I prefer, I mean, anyone that's ever met me knows that I prefer to cast. And since the window is so short and I could kind of make it happen, casting, I, I tend to stick to that a little bit more. But yeah, they're definitely a different breed of fish. And, and there's some big fish out here too. Uh, I've caught quite a few over 40 in the, in the last two seasons. And, and they're, they're thick. I mean, once you start feeding fish trout, they get massive. I mean, the, the fish we got on about a month ago, I took a, a, a week trip with, with my dad and I mean, their backs were wider than my head. It was, it was the most ridiculous thing I ever saw. That's awesome. I mean, and not only that, those tigers are obviously the most beautiful fish that swim in my opinion, but most beautiful in freshwater for sure. Oh no, they're, they're the paint jobs on them are, are phenomenal. And, and they're, they're definitely, they're a mix. I mean, it, you know, having fish like pure muskies and then also, you know, anyone that's ever fished muskie, you're going to encounter pike. So you kind of understand kind of their habit patterns too. And it's just like this conglomerate of like muskie and pike DNA. They definitely like speed out here, figure eighting. Oh my goodness. I had to like kind of reinvent the wheel as far as figure eighting out here and what that looked like. They, they like speed. Um, and if, if you're not figuring out here, like vigorously, <laughs> you, you're, you're not going to get them to go. It's just the, the water is really clear. I mean, most of our lakes are at anywhere from 7,500 feet to, I was the lake, the last lake that I fished was at over 9,000 feet. So, I mean, you've got like this clear crystal runoff from like, you know, the, the springs and everything and, and some of the snow melt that still is kind of making its way down. I mean, it's, it's gin clear. So, and it's interesting the way that they use structure as well. There's periods where they don't use weeds the same way as I've seen in the Midwest. So a, a lot of times I catch them on the edges as opposed to in the weeds, if that makes any sense at all. They, they primarily use the edges as opposed to like burying themselves in the weeds and waiting for something to, to pop out. Um, you know, above them, which is weird, right? Like fishing Wisconsin and Illinois and, and, and Minnesota, you know, when you're, when you're fishing these weed fish, a lot of times, like you're fishing a weed patch as opposed to like these, 
the techniques I've kind of seen out here is I'll, I'll pitch in the weeds, nothing, and I'll turn it, you know, the boat, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 degrees and parallel or, you know, cast to like the very edge of the weeds and then bring it off. And that's, that's where I'm drawing the, the fish from. So you, you've really got to stay on your electronics pretty tight. And more often than not, when, you know, cause I mean, the weeds move around like they do in any body of water. Like the first day I kind of get on the water, if I haven't been out there for a while, cause these weeds grow so quickly up here is I'll remark some of my lines. So I know where to cast because if, if you're casting into the weeds most of the time, they're not in there. They're, they're on the edges. The other thing I find to be, I guess, kind of odd out there is how you tell me that there's no bite once the water temperatures get cooler, because, you know, up here in the, you know, in the Midwest, especially the North Midwest is Northern pike are a big deal in the winter. I mean, they're obviously very active. They're, you know, they'll kill baits all or they'll kill, you know, live bait. Anyways, most people put them on tip ups and I mean, even guys catch them on hot dogs. So, you know, they're, they, and they obviously have that DNA in them being tiger muskies. Cause that's, you know, kind of how that works out. And I'm just amazed that you can't catch them when it's cold, but you've been telling me this for, I mean, how long you've been out there now? A couple seasons at least? Jeff, it's maddening. I mean, I cannot tell you how many days I've spent on the water trying to figure it out. And I, maybe there's a, a more talented angler out there that can throw something different at them. But I just, once it gets below 60, they just, they just hunker down, man. I mean, and I've, I mean, all the tactics that you would see in the Midwest, whether it be big rubber, you know, ripping big cranks, you know, trolling bigger baits, you know, all the things that, that seem to work well in the fall just don't seem to work out here for these tigers. I just, they, they don't go. And I've, I beat myself up. I mean, I, I, you know, I put many hours out there once it got colder and just came back empty handed and with my, with my head in my hands going, I, I don't I suck as a musky fisherman. The other thing too, is we can't fish with live bait. Anything West of pretty much Denver, which is most of like all the lakes I fish, there's no live bait. So I think that would change the dynamic. If I could fish suckers, uh, I guarantee you, I could probably bump into a few fish, but it's just not allowed. Well, Chris, you know, you said you suck as a musky fisherman. I, I feel the same, and I, my my fish will eat all year round. They'll eat live bait. They'll eat everything. So, I mean, at least, at least you have a reasonable excuse. I don't even know that. No, I I don't know. I think I, I just got to the point where I'm like, the juice is not worth the squeeze, and that's tough for me because I, I think, you know, I, I, I got no problem, like, working hard, but I've it comes to a point where it's like this is this is no longer productive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after multiple, multiple, multiple trips with nothing, it just you just have to be like, okay, is it just me or is it others? And I, and there's a good community out here that kind of talks and communicates, and everyone kind of warned me about this beforehand. But you know, I've got this little thing called an ego, and you know, I've had an opportunity to fish all over the country, and I think, oh no, maybe they just don't know. I mean, they're not approach these types of situations. No, they do. Uh, the fish just don't care. <laughs> so out there how many lakes do you have to choose from to, that have muskies in them okay so that's a loaded question because some lakes long story short i, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that colorado purchases its muskies from nebraska nebraska did not produce hybrid muskies and I'm going to get the dates wrong, so anyone from Colorado, please don't kill me. I want to say it was from like 2012 to 2016, there were no tiger muskies purchased. So there was no stocking from those years. So there's still a few lakes out there that they used to hit really hard that they just were like, oh, we're not going to put them in anymore. And then there's other lakes that they started to like reintroduce like introduce them. So there's a couple emerging fisheries that have them. There's a couple of lakes that have both. But I've kind of poked around and kind of narrowed my scope to three or four lakes that I primarily fish. And most of the anglers in the state know those lakes, and that's where they spend their time. Sure. And, I mean, based off what you're telling me, so you said 2012 to 2016 is what you're thinking it was. Typically, yeah. if I remember right, the lifespan of a tiger is not nearly as long as a pure muskie is that right i could be wrong but i thought that, that i thought that was the case that's correct and i mean 
So, I mean, I'm just going to tip my hat a little bit to how kind of nutty I am about the sport and kind of collecting information. I got, I went through and actually got the, the, what is it? The Washington DNR. They have done some really good studies with tiger muskies and they collected growth rates. So I kind of had an idea of what Washington was doing. And I think ours are similar, but I can't, there's never been any studies out here. And I know our fish are different um, just from the conversations that I've had with the, the folks out West, as far as, you know, really hitting the muskies hard in the way they react to certain baits and their feeding windows and yada, yada, yada. But I, I would say that they're probably somewhat similar. So three to four years, typically you could see a hybrid muskie get into that like 30 range. And then from there, I've kind of have no clue. Do I think that there's some holdovers from pre 2012 still swimming around? Yes. I've seen them in a couple lakes and they're dinosaurs. I mean, they're, I mean, that's the crazy thing about musky fishing out here is you could be beating your head in, not catching a fish all day, and then you'll see a four foot musky just swim underneath your boat, like just saying hello. Um, so that that could be maddening at times when you'll see them swimming around and they just don't care uh, about what you're doing. But I've also learned that like sometimes you'll see fish swimming around like your boat, and there's still fish that will set up. So I think that it's just more of an insight to what a muskie actually does in its spare time. And I hate to break it to you. They're just swimming around in circles looking at things uh, while a fish kind of just move up to feeding spots and kind of move off. So like that, that's what I've seen, at least being able to like physically watch these fish kind of do their thing. So, but yeah, I think 10 to 12 years is about the lifespan of a, of a hybrid muskie, at least kind of what I've seen in, in the data. Yeah, I think based on my research, that's what I had figured as well. And obviously, you know, there's no natural reproduction. So some of those fisheries that were stocked in 2016, yeah, like you said, there might be some around. The It's not a perfect science, right? I mean, maybe there's one or two that live to be 14 years old or however it would be. So definitely, uh, you know, the stocking issue definitely hurts it, especially with tigers, which is why they use them to control bait populations because they don't reproduce so if they want to get rid of them they don't have to worry about pulling them out of the lake they literally just let them run their course and that's it it's over yeah i mean there was a few fisheries out here that i had read about on the internet before i got here only discovered that they didn't put them back in there right so they they kind of did what they needed to do and now they're returning them back to their their, their cash flow, which is trout, right? So what, once they kind of do their thing, or the DNR is kind of like, okay, it ran its course. We got the kind of fishery where we wanted to do. Let's pump more trout in there. Yeah, it's unfortunate that muskies are never anybody's cash cow, right? So we're always kind of like second fiddle to something, whether it be walleyes or bass in the Midwest. You know, like you said, trout out there. It's It's kind of disappointing. It is. I mean, but the other cool thing, though, is like, I'll be honest, they were, they were kind of, they had that kind of a similar approach in New Jersey, but I'm telling you when they, when they mix trout and musky, I'm telling you, they make the biggest, dockiest fish that you could imagine. I mean, I've never seen thicker fish. Maybe like if you're going to go up to like Georgian Bay or, you know, sometimes on Lake of the Woods, you'll bump into a fish that's like, you know, been eating Cisco's and Polite, just massive fish, but like, these fish like girth wise, like honest to God, like if they had the space to grow, like they, like they would, they would get to like Georgian Bay side because they're just, they're in smaller lakes out here. They just don't have the acreage to get that big, but they're wide. I mean, and they're fat. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you see some of my pictures, every thing there, every muskie I'm holding looks like it's just been on, you know, the trout diet. Like they're just, they're, it's like, what, what was that? that thing where the guy ate McDonald's for like 30 days straight and gained like 30 pounds. Like it, it's the same thing. Like they're just, they're, they're a high fat content fish and like they just get stupid. They just get big. They get like that picture that Brad photoshopped for me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, did, did you see, did you see like some of the, the fish I posted like a couple weeks ago? Yeah. I mean, they were, they were thick, man. Mm-hmm. Definitely a pretty cool place to fish. So, uh, let's let's rein this back in. What I want to do is kind of get you know new anglers or anglers looking to explore new waters, kind of an, an idea of things they can do to try to have success quicker. So 
what was your thought process or how did you go about, you know, you, you said you got it narrowed down to four lakes. You know, how did you get it to those four lakes? And then on a daily basis, how do you decide which lake you're going to go to? All right. I, I know uh, we got Brad on the, on the line. So I'm going to ask him a loaded question. Brad, how do you eat an elephant? It's real easy. It's one piece at a time, right? One piece at a time. That's right. So I think one of the one of the greatest pieces of, pieces of advice that I've gotten was just fish small, right? When you're learning like a new body of water, just kind of like pick an area to kind of like settle down in and fish it, right? Like pick it apart and then move on, right? And to the next one and to the next one. And before you know it, like after a season, you have a pretty good understanding of either an area of a lake or in some cases the lake itself. So as I move around, I think one of the biggest things I do is I just fish small, if that makes sense. Like, even if I end up like on a big body of water, I try not to let it overwhelm me. I just say, okay, this is the area that I'm going to kind of like hunker in down. This is, you know, based on, you know, whether it be maps or charts or even word of mouth, just talking to people. It's like, okay, just kind of get out there and, and seal it out. You're not going to run the, the structure right the first time. You're going to run over points. You're going to fish a break too far off you're going to fish a break too far tight uh and and that's okay right you you just there's not going to be as many opportunities as you would like once you fully understand the lake so that's kind of like the first kind of moto that i have it's just kind of fish small i think the other thing that i do uh, that may be a little bit different than most is when i'm learning a new body of water or like as i'm moving around fishing new stuff i keep my trolling motor on like five or six so that I can gather as much information as I can in a short amount of time. And that has to match like your bait selection as well. So I kind of go with like, I like to power fish. Most people that that know me know that's kind of my style, but I'm just going to go with like, you know, out here, I heard that smaller baits work. So I picked up a small bucktail, a small spinner bait and you know, a top water and just went to town. And I'm just like, okay, let me cover some water and, see where I'm contacting fish, even a follow in that case. Like if I get a follow, like there's a piece of information, you know, I'll kind of run through like that checklist in my mind. Okay. Where am I at? Why is that fish there? You know, if it didn't eat, maybe, maybe this is an area where I need to go through slower, but just kind of like, kind of like playing that, like, like almost like a, not a game, but it's like a puzzle. Like why is that fish there and what is it doing? And then kind of like, well, where can this be replicated? Right. Where other, parts of the lake that may have a similar setup. And to be honest with you, that that's how I fish Lake of the Woods every year. Um, you know, cause it's such a structure heavy place. You could kind of just pull out a map and say, okay, these are the types of places that we're seeing things. Where can this be duplicated and replicated for success? Uh, so that, that that's the, the thing is like when you're, I prefer to, to, to fish fairly fast pace when I'm breaking down a body of water, cause it gives me an opportunity to, to bump into structure to kind of understand things like how the lake is laid out. And then I kind of hunker in, you know, once I've kind of established, like, you know, after, I mean, there's been days where, you know, I go two, three, four trips and I don't see anything, but then on that fourth one, okay, I know how to position the boat. So I'm putting myself in a better position. The other thing that I would say is those, like those two things, like, you know, fish small, fish fast. And then finally, I'll just keep it to three bullet points. I think the third one is to use the available resources. And, you know, there's so much information out there on the internet. It doesn't mean that you have to like follow somebody around or, or ask a guide on the lake where he thinks that he should fish. That there's a, there's usually a pretty good community out there that's willing to like help out or at least point you in the right direction. I reached out to a, a couple of customers that were regulars for us and just said, Hey, I'm, I'm coming out there. If there's any, you know, tips or tricks or areas, you know, it, you'd recommend fishing, you know, just just give me, you know, would you be happy providing some information? And of course they were like, sure, like here's some ideas and here's some things that have worked for us and here's some things that haven't. So it just kind of gives you a starting point. And I know we weren't on the line when I was talking, but I told Brad that I, I I kind of inadvertently got myself into hunting this year, which has been a a whole endeavor. And I got to be honest, I, I love it. But one of the key takeaways that I got hunting turkeys, you know, the last three weeks was, it was the community. It was really cool to, you know, just 
kind of be humble and just, you know, start from scratch. It's like, I, I really don't know what I'm doing. I'll take any advice that you have to offer. And what you choose to do with that advice is, is kind of a personal decision, right? So like, okay, I've heard this or that doesn't necessarily fit my style, but at least you're, you're cutting that learning curve a little bit. So I, I was really fortunate that, that when I got into turkeys this year, that there were some good folks out there that just, you know, saw, you know, a new, a new hunter and said, Hey, we'll kind of take you underneath our wing. I mean, it, I, I honestly, I told Brad, I, I didn't even, I drew a, an archery tag this year and I haven't fired a bow since like Boy Scouts. So, and I had 30 days, I, it was basically a, it was a tag on the Air Force Academy to hunt turkeys. And so I had a, a pretty short period to like one, get a bow two get proficient with it. And then three, learn how to track and hunt turkeys in the fall, which is, pretty maddening but there's a lot of good folks that that kind of jumped in and kind of pointed me in the right direction so i didn't get a bird and i'm perfectly okay with that i had two chances to shoot and that was awesome and i completely whiffed on both of them but it, it gave me an opportunity to get out there and kind of see like what it looked like what worked and what didn't and then you know i think the big thing is debrief right talk to folks so even if it's just a phone call if you if you find a friend in, in an area just like hey here's what i saw have you seen this before and they'll kind of you know, oh yeah i've seen that and here's what i I think, or, you know, here's how you can improve this. Cause I, I had a lot of conversations about things that I did wrong and, and how I can improve it. But that's musky fishing, right? Like this isn't an easy sport. This is that musky fishing's not for everyone. Like it, it, there's a certain type of person that, that, that chases, chases muskies and they're, they're, they're all kind of wired similar, similarly. And it, it usually goes back to their work ethic. They're willing to work hard for long periods of time with very little reward. And I think it speaks a lot about our, our character as, as must be fishermen and fisherwomen. And I think that's what kind of sets us apart. So, you know, get out there and do the work and, and be willing to put in the hours where you're not going to get a lot of that return on investment. But once you figure it out, then that's the fun part, right? Yeah. I find it interesting that you're running at like, you know, you said your trolling motor is at like five to six when you're cruising around. Cause I, that's like the exact opposite of what I do. Like when I'm fishing solo and I'm looking to fish, I'm just trying, I'm trying to, instead of covering lots and lots of spots, I'm always trying to cover the spots that I deem to be the most, like, I guess I have the best chance at catching a muskie. I work them slower, but then again, you know, like you also said, you, it was a spinner bait and a bucktail and a topwater where you can work those baits effectively you know, faster. Typically for me, I don't lean towards a bucktail as my like confidence bait. I don't know why I just don't. It's like, for me, it's either probably a bulldog or a suic. We're going to be like two of them that I'm going to use the most. Metallica, man, seek and destroy. I think, you know, fundamentally, I guess it's two different ways to approach it. I'm like an efficiency guy, you know? And, and I think as far as I'm looking I'm just looking for clues, right? I'm any clue that I can get from a musty is a good one. And, and even if they don't eat it, Jeff, it still gives me a clue because I guarantee you that that fish that you get to eat a bulldog fishing small may show itself on a bucktail. Maybe, maybe there's a few fish in the area. Maybe one just comes in slow or low, but that still gives me a data point, right? So I'm just trying to gather as much data as I can in a short amount of time. Not to mention that I'm a weekend warrior. So I have to, do this over and over again, regardless of I'm moving, I have to get out there and kind of figure out what the fish are doing and where they're kind of, where they're kind of positioned and, and, and how they're hunkered down and using structure, et cetera, et cetera. So I've always looked at it like efficiency, like the more water I can cover, the more fish I can contact. And if one of them gives me a clue, it's something that I could build upon. So I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a philosophical difference. It's just one thing that I've found that, that kind of helps. It's just like, for me, I'm just covering as much water as I can and trying to get them to, to, to give me something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, neither way is wrong, right? I mean, however you want, you want to do it. It's, no. And I guess that's why we, you know, have these kind of discussions on podcasts is because there's more, there, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I believe that's the, uh, how the, the saying goes, odd saying, whatever. But anyways, there's, you know, multiple ways to do it. I prefer to methodically pick my way through whatever it is I'm doing. You prefer to run and gun. And I can understand both approaches in my, in my opinion, I can, I get why people run and gun, but I'm, for me, sometimes I feel like I'm potentially missing certain parts of that water. Whereas like you, you're just trying to, you know, 
I guess, effectively cover as much water as you can. So that makes sense too. I mean, quite honestly, if, if we didn't care about how we catch them, trolling is going to be your best option. It's always going to, you're always going to cover the most water. The only obvious issue to it sometimes is occasionally it's, you know, if the fish are holding tight to cover and things like that, it can be a lot more difficult to access them that way. But I mean, technically if, if covering water is the deal, it's always, it should always be about trolling, but you know, like Brad's talked about before, and you you mentioned most most musky anglers, I think, would prefer to catch them casting over trolling. I would say that if we took a poll, it'd probably be like ninety percent to ten percent. I do know at one point when I was learning how to troll, I wanted to just troll. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to cast. I didn't care about the hit. I didn't care about the figure eight. I got excited about every single rip I got, and I devoted I would say probably two seasons for sure where I hardly ever was going to cast and now i hardly ever troll you've got that in your background though because now you've done the work right so there it is like you took the time and invested in learning a different approach to fishing and now what you've done is when you do troll how much more effective are you Jeff? I mean, well, now when I troll, I'm trolling up in northern Wisconsin, so I'm using one line versus a lot of the stuff I was trolling before was three lines. But I mean, I you know, I, I feel like I'm a proficient troller. I obviously don't feel like I'm as proficient as I once was because that see, you know, the seasons that I did that, oh man, that was probably I don't know, ten, twelve, maybe even longer years ago where I was just trolling all the time. And, but yeah, I mean, I feel like I could do it either way. I feel like I could pick a body of water apart, whether I'm trolling or casting right now. I feel like I could, you know, whatever the bite is, I feel like I'm, I'm proficient enough to do it. Am I an expert? No, I'm not. I'm not a guide much like you. I'm basically a weekend warrior. I mean, I've in the last month, I think I've spent three days on the water and that was the most time in the water I've spent all season. So, uh, you know, can I, can I find them and catch them? Yes, I can. Am I outstanding musky angler no i'm not i'm much like everybody that's listening to this podcast i'm in the same boat as all of you i'm not nearly to the brad hoppy level i think one of the the key points uh what chris is talking about is he's fishing new water and and so he's gonna do a little bit faster movements on those structures he's trying to pick it apart quick and fast and learn as much as he can in a short period of time i think where you're at jeff is you're fishing waters that you've probably fished before and then you're going to be a little bit methodical about your approach to those structures right and you're going to chop them apart but i think i mean chris is right on i mean it's all about pieces to the puzzle and i will do the same exact thing like if i'm struggling i'm going to put that boat at a little bit faster pace i'm going to chop things apart quickly just to see if i can find a fish and once i find a fish then i can slow things back down and I, I definitely think that you, you're cutting the learning curve real quick by just boom, 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 chopping things apart. Once you see a fish and you start putting things together, those pieces of those puzzles come together, slow it all down and start picking those pieces of structure apart. Yeah, and I, it was funny that you mentioned that, Brad. I was thinking the same thing when, when Jeff was talking about picking an area apart. It's Once you kind of see fish kind of doing what you think they should be doing or in an area, right, you may fish four or five different weed beds, right? But all of a sudden you get a couple clues on one weed bed, then that's when I'll, I'll, I'll turn the boat around and go back through it and take more of a Jeff approach. Okay, hey, I got some information here. Let's expand upon it, right? Let's, you know, they, I, I got them to move, you know, I got them to come in on a bucktail, but they didn't seem very interested. Maybe it's time to take out a glide or a rubber or a crank or a jerkbait, you know? And as you know, I've got three or four rods out and, you know, maybe I'll work the first stretch like this and the next stretch with this, you know, or even better, like let's talk about numbers, right? Having one angler in a boat versus two anglers in the boat and whether or not they both should be doing the same thing or something different. I mean, my dad and I have a philosophy that unless like they're only moving on like one thing and we've had like one or two days to like fully understand that's what's happening, we're throwing different baits. Never in our boat, like my dad and I, or even Matt and I, when we used to fish together, would we commit to one style of fishing? So that's just something else to kind of think about. It's like from a numbers perspective, if you could find a buddy or a wingman to go out there with you, you're more than likely doubling your chances to catch a fish if you're doing something different, right? Absolutely. And I think the other part to that, Chris, is 
you might have a bait that the fish are following. It doesn't mean that they're going to eat it, right? Um, as an oh, yeah. example, the last, last three <laughs> days that I guided, we were getting tons of follows on triggers, but they weren't eating. So I'm in the back of the boat. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my guys throw the bait that's moving the most fish until I can figure out exactly what it is that they want to eat, right? Absolutely. Just because you're having follows doesn't mean they're eating. So you got to, you got to experiment, you got to figure that out. What is it that's going to make them bite? Shake and bake. That's what my dad and I say, shake and bake. You know, one person, one person's kind of got the dialed up where, and then the other person's back there kind of experimenting, trying to see if there's something else. And I'm telling you over the years, we've put exponentially more fish in the boat by taking that kind of approach. So like my, another thing I would, I would say is if, if you're going to go check out new water, just kind of like an asterisk, you know, at the bottom of my three bullet points is like, if, if you have a friend that wants to go explore with you and you want to cut the learning curve, that, that would be the most optimal condition. Man, if only I had a couple of friends that wanted to go fishing with me. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I actually don't mind. I, aside from the not having multiple baits in the water and then having somebody to talk to in the boat, I actually don't mind fishing solo. It doesn't bother me one bit. I just did it for this you know yesterday and i didn't mind it at all there are obviously i mean there's a huge advantage to i mean the overall boat fish count or however you want to look at it you know we're all we're all keeping track of how many fish that we catch and you know there's obviously a huge advantage to it yesterday would have been a prime example i was torn between slower presentations and bucktails so i i kind of split time and I, but I, you know, no offense to Brad, but to me, a bucktail isn't my confidence presentation. And that is so strange because more fish are probably caught on bucktails than any other lure. I understand more people are probably throwing them than any other lure, but you know, day after day after day, fish are always eating bucktails and it's just not my confidence presentation. So I think maybe that's also part of the reason why I don't work things as fast as you guys would. I don't, I wouldn't I say this on time of year. I mean, it could be, but right now they should still be eating bucktails. I mean, yesterday would have been a prime example. Water temperatures were still in the sixties. It should have still been a bucktail bite. You sound typical of a lot of Northern Wisconsin anglers. And, and I mean that by no harm whatsoever, right? You, it seems like Wisconsin anglers love their rubber and their wood baits. <laughs> <laughs> that that's truly what Wisconsin guys love to throw, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that whatsoever. And and I think that every bait, I don't care what kind of bait it is, there's a time and a place, right? And so, you know, depending on what you're doing and how you're approaching a certain body of water, or a certain structure that you might be fishing, you know, you have to utilize the tools that we all have in our arsenal. So. That's something to consider. And like I said, I'm not trying to speak negative of anybody's style or anything else. If it works for you, good for you. You know, that's the bottom line. Let me ask you this, Brad. Would you consider rubber a, a, a bait that triggers fish, right? Takes that like medium fish or even a neutral fish and gets them to go? Or do you think rubber is just on the, the spectrum of like only active fish eat it? Uh, no, I, I think you can trigger fish. And I think that uh, by rights, you know, a bait that's going to stop and go, whether that be ripping, yeah. whether it be jumping, you know, vertically is definitely a triggering factor. Wood is no different, right? I mean, you could go through all the spectrums, right? You could do, you could twitch crankbaits. You could work a wooden jerkbait. Um, there's so many different ways to do that. And then if you want to really get crazy, you can start adding weight to that bait. So now you're getting deeper. And when you pull on that, that pull pause, it's, it's going to make those fish react to that. And so if you have negative I, fish, yeah. definitely something to, to consider. I agree. And, and I think it's just like philosophically when I'm breaking down water, I'm not necessarily looking for triggering fish. I'm trying to find active fish, right? As far as like a time commitment is concerned, you know, the amount of time and effort that you're going to put into trying to trigger a fish versus trying to find a fish that's actively feeding, right? So I think if you find spaces like on a lake where fish actively feed, 
you also find a place where you can trigger a fish if you go there, right? And you're like, hey, I've seen active fish here before. Maybe they're not as active today. And that's when I'm going to take out some of those other tools in my toolbox out that can trigger them. So that, that's just kind of like my thought process there as far as like how I approach things. It's like if I know that the fish are setting up on a certain spot, whether it be a point or a weed bed or a break, you know, habitually they're in there feeding. Maybe, maybe that day they're not, they're not as hyped up as they would be like the day or two before, but I know I can go back to that area and hit them with like a bulldog and get them to go. So it's just, that's just kind of how I kind of look at things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, you're getting a bait, like I said a little bit ago, if you're getting a bait that's getting follows, they're at least looking. Obviously, what they're doing is they're giving themselves away, right? You know where they yeah, are. Yep. Now you can attack that with a different bait and see if you can't get something to react to actually make them bite. I mean, that's the bottom line. Yep. You, have to, you have to utilize all those different little things that happen throughout the day to actually put more fish in the bag. And I mean, that's how I would dial it all in. <laughs> yeah. So Chris, you know, one of the things that I've always heard about and you do hear about, I should say, is that tigers love bright colors. Are you finding that to be the case in Colorado? Are you changing your color selection based upon fishing tigers versus trues? That is a great question. So I have, a lot of space and a lot of different colors. I will say that most of the colors that I found myself fishing were very standard to musky fishing, almost even more simple. Contrast has been my biggest color. I don't know if that makes sense. Like that's been the best pattern that I found, like whether it be, straight black over something, straight white over something, straight gold over something, but just very simple. Uh, the, the fishery is so, the fisheries out here are so clear that your, your standard stuff seems to work really well. I, I, I too had heard those things, you know, I'd heard rumors of pink and bright and flashy, and I think they have their time or place, but I've been kind of just like, Hey, if it's, dark and overcast i'm throwing something a little bit more subtle if it's bright and sunny i'm throwing something that has a little more contrast and that's really seemed to work well for me there's been some little nuances on the lakes that i fish as far as like what colors seem to pop but i will say that you know matching the hats right like they feed on uh you know trout and so i've, I've stuck to some patterns that may have some trout variations and i've stuck to some patterns that are just true killers in the musty world. Um, and for those of you that, that if you were to find the three or four most basic colors of, of musty lures out there, that, that I guarantee you I've had success with them out here. So it, it was, it, it almost made me look at my tackle box and wonder why I had so much stuff in it. But <laughs> it, it's been pretty simple as far as the colors go. Would you say that uh, there's any team rhino colors in there? There are some team rhino <laughs> colors in there that have done very well. Um, and I know, I, I know Jeff, Jeff knows some of the buddies that hang out here and they, they order frequently. <laughs> so I think the word's out on what colors that he has. And even his baits too. They're Squirko, man. Holy moly. That thing. I know Jeff. Oh my God. John's going to kill me about that one. But everybody those things, that, man. Everybody uh, that fishes out there has to have one. Dude, I'm telling you, they work, man. I, that's one bait, like, when it's getting tough and, you know, I'm forced to slow down, right? That's the other thing. It's like, if you're covering a lot of water and, and nothing's working, then, then it's time to, like, shift gears. It's like, okay, you know, we, we've all done this on, on you know, post-frontal days and, and, and when, when you're just not seeing a lot going on, that's when it's time to, like, pump the brakes and, and start to pick some stuff apart and see where they go. And and I heard about this squirt bite out here, and, and I can confirm it is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> junk absolute junk <laughs> i don't know who makes those things but they they do get beat up i may or have three or four in the same color because one of them got chewed up so good all right chris well before we head out of here if people want to keep up with the uh ins and outs of lunge and lures what's the best way they can go about doing that i mean we're on social media i think that's that's probably the best place they can find us is on social media i try to 
you know, we'll send out, uh, you know, some emails every once in a while. They could, they could sign up for our emails. I, I try to keep them thin because I know people get in, inundated with email traffic these days. So we, we're pretty deliberate with sending out. You can find us on, uh, you know, Keys Outdoors. We actually partnered with, with Jim Sarek this year. So we're going to be on, on, on his, his Muskie Hunter TV this year because him and I have been talking for a while and he's used our products for a long time. So we were able to finally come together and collaborate there. So there, those, you know, between Keys, you know, Muskie Hunter TV, and then additionally, you know, like social media, whether it be Instagram or, or Facebook, you can kind of keep up with the happenings of what's going on with London. Sounds good. Well, Chris, I want to thank you for taking, uh, you know, an hour out of your time to talk musky fishing with you. It's always good to catch up. And we want to thank all of our listeners for putting up with us for another episode. And we will put a new one out again next Wednesday. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Chris. It was good.